Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? If the species dies and some future species of intelligent um, flying octopus inherits the earth and they go back over us, they'll probably blame Facebook for our demise. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in as ever. Um, Now, usually right here, I say something like, this is your weekly dispatch from deep inside the Silicon Valley future machine. Uh, And it is. Uh, But this week, we're doing it a bit different. We're going to be looking at the dark side of technology, the CD underbelly. Uh, And we'll be doing it with uh, Jaron Lanier, who is, well, uh, a lot of things. He's a pioneer of virtual reality. He's uh, co-founded or started several companies, the last of which he sold to Google. Uh, And for the last dozen years, he's run a research lab at Microsoft. But he's also an author and a very good one. Um, In fact, he's one of the most eloquent writers on technology around, uh, both on the immense possibilities of technology, but also its pitfalls. Uh, And the latter is the subject of his latest book, uh, which is called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. So no prizes for guessing what it's about. Now, before you roll your eyes at yet another critic coming out to bash social media, I know it's uh, the fashion these days, I'd ask you to pause. Because Lanier's arguments aren't emotional, knee-jerk reactions. Um, He actually writes as an insider, as someone who understands the algorithms that get us checking our phones 150 times a day. Uh, In other words, he understands the machine. And he's one of the few willing to point out in very clear, cogent, step-by-step ways of why it's so dangerous. Um, So a few days back, I and a photographer from the Sunday Times Magazine drove up a very long, winding road high in the Berkeley Hills in the East Bay to Lanier's house. Hi. Hey, how are you? Danny. Good hey, to meet you. how's it going? All right. This is a cool, funky house. Lanier's house is hot pink on the outside, and on the inside is strewn with musical instruments. There was a harp, violins, a bunch of different violins, um, some kind of percussive instrument that looked like a flying saucer. Uh, Lanier reckons he has something between 1,000 and 2,000 instruments in his house. Um, and he also looks the part of a rebel. Uh, he opened the door in bare feet and flowing dreadlocks, the longest of which sweep the back of his knees. So we sat down in his kitchen 
to talk about why he's written this book, what it feels like to be seen as a traitor in Silicon Valley, and why he thinks it's so vital that we all unplug from social media. Agree or disagree with what he has to say, I think you will find that he will make you think quite hard about how you lead your online life. Oh, and um, one other thing. He also had cats. Four of them. They'll be important, so remember them. Here's Jaren. Thank you for having us here and letting us sit at your kitchen table. So I read the book. Ten Arguments. Yes, the one right here. To me, what, what struck me in the book is that a lot of the things you say are kind of obvious, and I don't mean that in, in any negative way, but you stop and think about some of these things, and you're like, well, of course. But no one really ever stops to think about it. And I think one of the good ways to kind of introduce conversation is you talk about the bummer machine. <laughs> and yeah. what, so what is the bummer machine and how does it work? The book is called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. It is. They are all part of the bummer machine. So what is the bummer so, machine? Hey, before I get to the bummer machine, can I make a comment on this question of sure. obviousness? So I've been writing about this for a long time. I wrote pieces that were similar in content to much of this book as early as 92. What's interesting is at that time, I wasn't the only person saying such things, but I was one of a very small number of people and it felt quite lonely. Then a little later on, I got a bit more visibility, and then I was considered a radical, and I lost friends. I was going to say, and, were you seen as a traitor? Yeah, of? I was seen as a traitor. And now, the same material, I sometimes get comments saying, well, but you're just collecting things that have been said and that are somewhat obvious. And I, Well, maybe now is the time when it's more important than ever to say these things. Yeah. So the bummer machine is... Um, <laughs> I got tired of saying over and over again that we've created behavior modification empires for rent and that we've created a world. So that's of, the acronym, effectively. Yeah, it's a behavior of users modified. And, you know, actually, I don't remember what it was. No, I have it right here. <laughs> behavior of mu- users modified and made into an empire for rent. There it is. Behavior. Yeah. Maybe not memorable enough if the author forgets it, right? (laughs) But anyway, I just wanted to come up with something so I wasn't repeating the same phrase over and over again. And so the bummer machine is just a way of stating what I believe we've created, which is the use of continue, continuously connected devices that we keep on our, around ourselves, including smartphones and smart speakers, that are used to gather a great deal of data about us, which is then fed through algorithms that compare us to other people. And on the basis of observing a great many of us, calculate a stream of stimuli that are sent to us that are calculated to modify us. And the only business plan driving it is people who are paying because they believe it'll change our behavior. We used to call them advertisers, but when you enter into continuous behavior modification, I don't think you should call them advertisers anymore. Anymore, I be I prefer to call them the manipulators. And I have to say, I'm treading a fine line here because my point of view is that this was all fundamentally a mistake rather than an evil plan. And a lot of the customers of the system whom I'm calling manipulators, but are usually called advertisers, a lot of these people are actually stuck paying into it because 
it's almost like a protection racket or a blackmail racket where if they don't pay into it, they'll become invisible. I don't mean to vilify anybody. I'm using strong language because I think the problem is serious, but at the same time, the problem is more a mistake than a question of identifying evildoers. I realize that can be emotionally unsatisfying. I often have people tell me, no, 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 you should really go after them. <laughs> and I, like, I, don't, I just don't think that fits the facts. Because we're effectively, yeah. we're talking about Google, Facebook, Twitter. Those are the kind of the big ones that, that the, we're to- The big ones. Effectively, the ad-driven yeah. giants. And Twitter being um, big in terms of influence, not so much as a business itself. And then there's some others that would include companies like uh, Reddit, let's say, that are smaller players, but still play a role in it. And some other emerging ones that might play a role. The test is, have military intelligence psych warfare units put money into something? And if they have, then you can say it's bummer because that's the only kind of thing they put money into. That would exonerate companies like Apple and Amazon. That doesn't mean that, that they should not be criticized perhaps for other things. But for this particular thing, it's a rather specific problem around specific entities. So as you say, you've been writing about this in one form or another since 92. Why have you decided now you need to actually just put this out? Because so, a lot of the language you use is quite forceful. It's written with a sense of urgency. Yeah, that also is a trick because I think one of the problems with the current uh, the bummer regime is that it rewards those who are able to get attention by becoming an irritant. So if you have an attention economy where the most people can gain is just getting attention and all the money is concentrating to those who own the scheme, in such a world, there tends to be a lot of really alarmist, uh, irritating communication. So if you want to come in and criticize that state of affairs, you really have a dilemma because you can try to take the high road and say, well, I will be this very uh, you know, measured, sober exemplar of excellent discourse. And the chances are you'll be invisible if you do that. And so you have to find some kind of middle ground where your language is strong enough to get through, but you don't fall off the edge and start vilifying people or becoming mean-spirited. And so I've tried to find that line. I don't think it's possible to find it perfectly. So one of the things that, that you bring up in the book is that the whole system, these system of personalized algorithms, what it wants, what it what it kind of needs, the crude oil, so to speak, is kind of nastiness. When it comes to modern behavior modification using smartphones and so on, the most typical rewards and punishment that are used to modify behavior are uh, the generation of social feelings, either positive social feelings, oh, I was retweeted, somebody likes me, somebody's following me, all that sort of thing, which can have a very addictive quality. Within the industry, those are known as dopamine hits. That's a neurotransmitter associated with pleasure and reward and behavior modification. The punishments are the uh, feelings of social anxiety, ostracization, <laughs> the feeling of potential inadequacy, the fear of being bullied and so forth, or actually being bullied, which is quite common. There's been a long history of experimentation comparing punishment and reward and behavior modification. You can find a library full of papers about that. But the particular question that matters in a commercial context hadn't been studied as much, and that is, which is the most economical to bring up negative or positive feelings? The answer is a little complex. The negative feelings 
come on faster and dissipate more slowly. It's quicker to lose trust than it is to build trust. Faster to alienate somebody than it is to build love and trust with somebody. It's not exactly a question of the negative emotions being more potent ultimately than the positive ones, but rather the time signatures of them. So since this is a computerized system with very rapid response times, all of the advertisers and all of the posters seeking attention and everybody in the system is doing whatever will create the effect they desire as rapidly as possible, as opposed to whatever will create an effect ultimately that's as as great as possible. So since it's based on rapidity, you tend to have advertisers chasing after negative streams without intending to. Because so, that's just what the algorithm the algorithm decides. Is only, the algorithm is only interested in efficacy. These people who spend money into the system, who are called advertisers, are only interested in efficacy. But the feedback loop by which they determine what is effective is very rapid. So it tends to emphasize... And that's engagement. Yeah, they call it engagement. I prefer right. to call it addiction, but potato, potato. The key thing here is that the timing tends to favor negative emotions. If you're basing your decisions on very rapid feedback, you can measure that somebody's lost trust because it can happen very quickly, but you can't measure the build of trust because it happens so slowly that it gets lost in this very rapid feedback system. I do believe there was no evil plan. I was close enough to it and I know enough people in it that I believe we fell into this by accident. We've inadvertently created a system that emphasizes negativity and empowers it. So it empowers the most cranky, paranoid people to have influence in the world. It differentially benefits abusers over the abused, and it, and it does so universally, even though it can often create the impression that positive social change is happening initially. Because active, Yeah, because I wanted yeah. to ask you about that, because in, in the book, one of the points mm-hmm. you make, which is I think is really interesting, is that social media makes the first wins easy. The winning of rights or the Arab Spring or what have you. And then over time, it just kind of gets perverted. Why does that happen? Right. Well, the canonical example for me is the Arab Spring. So what you have is the initial discovery by well-meaning people that they can use the bummer machine to their advantage. And in this case, young people in the Arab world discovered that they could use social media to organize a revolution in a way that had really never been seen before, large scale over many countries, multiple continents, but without any singular leadership, genuinely decentralized and good spirited. And I mean, it was an amazing thing. So you initially get this free ride, but it turns out to be a teaser, like um, the first free hit from a pusher. Uh, offering drugs, because then it turns out that the algorithms behind the scene are analyzing what you have done and who's responded to it how as a natural algorithmic reflex without any evil person sitting in a cubicle doing it. The counter group is also organized. The people who are distressed by what you've done, who dislike it, the bullies, the racists, the extremists, all of these people are introduced to each other. They're put into common flows. They're empowered when they excite each other. And all this starts happening at the same time. And here's the kicker. Since negativity works better on these platforms than positivity, ultimately the same tools that you used to pursue your goals are more effective. ISIS got more bang for the buck on social media than the Arab Spring activists. Another example in the United States is the Black Lives Matter movement initially used social media to raise awareness of police shootings of unarmed American citizens who happen to be black, which is uh, not something we're proud of. 
But then at the same time, naturally behind the scenes, the algorithms also identified and introduced a counter group. And that group got more mileage out of the same tools than the initial activists. And this created this absurgence of a kind of a racist nationalist movement in the U.S. of a kind we haven't seen in generations. So that's the that dynamic is you have these algorithms which seek engagement and or addiction, i.e. tweets, likes, shares, etc., Mm-hmm. And the best way to make that happen is to say nasty or controversial stuff because it kind of it's like a dog, a dog whistle. People re- react to it more in a way than if you say, well, today's a beautiful day. I have to say that I think if we measured the effects over the period of years, positivity might actually turn out to be the more powerful force. But if we're measuring it in a short period of time, like minutes or a day, then negativity is the more powerful force. So this is something really crucial because I don't believe that fundamentally human nature is that awful. I think it's just that negativity and positivity have different time signatures. A computer system that emphasizes very quick feedback will tend to emphasize negativity. In the long term, if we had a different system that didn't run on such a a fast clock, we might end up emphasizing positivity because I really do have a lot of faith in human nature overall. I just think it's possible to isolate the worst of us and then amplify that bad part, which is what's been going on. The problem is is analogous to high-frequency trading in a market, where sometimes if you have a trader trading so quickly that there's not reality doesn't even have a chance to intervene, so that the market no longer is about reality, but just about competition between traders, what happens is the finance sector becomes bigger and bigger relative to the rest of the economy without really contributing a commensurate amount of value to the rest of the economy. And something like that is going on here, but the effect is worse because it has to do with human behavior and emotions. The title of the book, obviously, you're basically telling people delete your accounts for a while. At least try it. <laughs> um, because to your dog analogy, I mean, I think you say in the book we're becoming like well-trained dogs and you, we should all be like cats, which are more kind of do their own thing. Yeah, I have to say, it's not my intention to alienate dog lovers. Uh, <laughs> however, there is something remarkable about cats, which is that they're the only non-domesticated domestic animal. And right now we're like... Uh, we're living in a computer-driven Pavlovian system where we're just kind of salivating at our tweets yeah. and our likes and our shares. And uh, cats are, are infrequent guests of behaviorist experimenters <laughs> <laughs> because they just don't take to that sort of thing as well. I think that's how people should be. That should be our goal is to be more cat-like. You talk about how the algorithms prize that kind of immediate hit, generating those dopamine hits. Mm-hmm. But there obviously is a bit of an awakening going on. Does the answer have to be deleting your accounts or can it be let's change the algorithms so they prize something different? There are unquestionably positive things that come out of the services that I'm calling bummer. And there there are a number I could just mention very quickly. One that I mentioned in the book that I just find particularly touching is that before social media, it was hard for people who suffered from a rare disease to find each other and share experiences and information. And the ability of that of them to do that is profound. I don't advocate destroying the whole genre of social media or for that matter of other bummer systems. YouTube is a, another example that 
might not be called social media, but has some has the same qualities that I'm criticizing. Instead, what I'd like to do is see the system reformed. The popular way to think about it is let's make the algorithms better. I actually know the algorithms. <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not an outsider peering in and yeah. criticizing. I'm actually on the inside of it. And my opinion is we don't understand the algorithms well enough to really know what they're doing or how to improve them yet. We might, and there's a lot of optimism that we will any second, but a little bit of scientific humility is called for here. We have to recognize our limited understanding of how these things work. That might come across as a caustic thing to say in, in some technical circles, but I think ultimately anyone who's knowledgeable of, of these things would have to come to agree. The level at which I prefer to see a change is the incentive structure. Which also guides the algorithms. And so right now, the incentive structure is, is sort of a bizarre idea. We have this idea that if you have two people who wish to collaborate or communicate or have any kind of contact with one another, the only way that can be financed is because there's a third person who wishes to manipulate them. And that finance will be contingent on how well that third person feels that those two have been successfully manipulated. If that isn't a perverse incentive, I don't know what is. It's a recipe for making an insane society in which people are, are forever being pulled away from addressing their own problems directly, in which third parties have more power than first parties in any particular situation. So it's a, it's a stupid way to make a society. A better society would be one in which people are the direct financial players in what they do. This is what has led me to the idea that the people who are users should also be the people who are customers. As opposed to the product. As a, yeah, as opposed to the product. And so there's a cliche that on, on a, a service like Facebook, you're not the uh, customer, you're the product and all that. It's such a cliche that it's coming for some criticism lately. It's approximately true. I have to say that in the earliest days of companies like Facebook and Google, there was a very strong um, kind of idealism in, in Silicon Valley that in the future, everything would be done by volunteer groups that were funded by advertisers. So instead of commercial television or commercial movies with paid directors and studios and all that, unpaid volunteers would come together just as they did for the Wikipedia. And that was a genuine belief. It wasn't of... just a genuine belief. It was an orthodoxy. And if you challenged it, you lost friends and you lost career opportunities. It was it was a, a severe orthodoxy. I don't think I'm exaggerating. But at any rate, that was then. Yeah. Um, then something, we performed an experiment. And the experiment was that companies like Netflix and HBO and then Amazon Prime and others said, well, you know what? What if we just ask people to pay for their TV. And it turns out enough people did, that system worked. And we got this thing that's widely known as peak TV. It actually made TV better. And TV was a medium that had been derided before. It was treated as this garbage. Oh, just a bunch bin. of crappy sitcoms. And now it's yeah. considered to be this wonderful medium that might be superior to movies. And, and creating it, like real art. So, you know, we tried an experiment. We got a result. And so I know that people abhor the idea of paying for Facebook. They just don't believe they'd ever make any money if they or were paid for... Or for Google for, searches. Or for, for Google searches. They believe they wouldn't make any money if they might have an opportunity to be paid if they did something that was extremely influential or valuable over these services. And those feelings are natural given the immediate experience we have available to us. However, the logic is sound that it doesn't, it could turn out to be great. We could get peak social media. We could get something that's really a good deal. And those who can't afford it could receive some sort of subsidy and some significant number of people, a significant minority would actually earn their living from it. And I think it would be a better world. 
If I can mention just one thing about what peak social media might be, um, mm. my personal life has been dominated in recent years uh, by my wife's health struggles. She's been fighting cancer and, oh and successfully, but you know, right. a dozen operations. If you go online to try to get specific information that's helpful, you encounter a giant mountain that's just impassable. It's a, a mountain filled with manipulative crap, conspiracies and paranoid nonsense and just junk and weird commercial hucksterism. You just cannot dig through it to get to anything good trying to parse the professional literature on your own when you're actually looking for information is very hard there's no trustworthy intermediary right now who's readily accessible so under a regime of peak social media instead you'd get good information from people who have a fiduciary responsibility to make it good and you would expect quality and you'd get quality effectively for paying for what we're getting in a much more direct Way as in, I want to be on Facebook. I want to pay, I don't know, say 10, 10 bucks a month, and then I'm free of ads. And then it's just, it's just doing what it's supposed to do, which is connecting with my friends. And you know, I get to see my friends' kids and that person from high school or whatever. And that's connecting kind of with your friends is great. I mean, one of the things that really bugs me about Facebook's rhetoric is they'll say, "Look at the good we do. People can connect." Yeah, I don't but know if you've seen the commercial they put out yeah, recently. But that's the yeah. stuff that's intrinsic to the internet. That's not Facebook. That's just the stuff that they cornered the market on. We, meaning the community of computer scientists who built that, provided that stuff with the internet. Facebook did not invent that. They just got control of it. You know, of course you should be able to connect with people online. I mean, why did we make this thing? Of course you should. The problem is the manipulation and the, the inherent corruption of the current model. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready get 30, ready get 20 20, 20 ready get 20 20, ready get 15 15, 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So if we wind the clock back at the kind of, quote-unquote, the dawn of the Internet, or the Internet as we know it, 
what do we do differently to to get from where we are now where we are as you say in this kind of behavior manipulation cage and most of us don't know it well this is <laughs> of course the practical question what exactly is the plan from here forward yeah. undoubtedly it's not going to be instant or smooth the answer is going to have to be a little different for each company. It'll have to be a little different in each region of the world. It'll probably be slow and arduous and imperfect. It's certainly doable. In Europe, it might be driven a little bit more by regulatory pressure. In the U.S., it might be driven a little bit more by employee pressure. I say that not so much because I think that all the employees will believe everything I say, although a rather remarkable number of them have told me they do from both Google and Facebook. But rather, I think there's a problem that Google and Facebook uh, have succumbed to, which is they're also addicted to bummer, just like their users. They have an inability to diversify their profit centers. They can diversify their cost centers all they want. So Google can start all these crazy companies to, to solve death or whatever thing they want. But as far as how they make money, it tends to be over and over again the same thing. It's a one-trick pony. It's a one-trick pony, right. You're making money from people who think they can be modify the behavior of your users. So the thing is, this is a unique business model that prevents you from diversifying. So just by the laws of math, sooner or later, some situation will come along that'll be to the disfavor of a company that can only do one thing. There are all kinds of different scenarios that might lead to that moment of disfavor. But whenever it comes, that's when the company will suddenly be motivated to diversify. And I suspect in the case of companies like Google and Facebook, with Google, it might come from shareholders. With Facebook, it can't since it's controlled by the founder, but it could still come from employees. And so I think at, at that point, we'll start to see pressure, even in countries where there's very little regulatory pressure, we'll start to see just business pressure for them to change. And so what I'm hoping this public criticism and even a modest wave of principal delete, account deleters, <laughs> I hope what it does is it softens them up for that moment of transition of thinking instead of it being this horrible thing that's imposed upon them, instead, it's actually something that people will like that might have a lot of good about it that might make their employees and users and customers all feel better and it might that it might be a, a welcome change rather, rather than one to be resisted talking about like google for example you were there back in the early days correct i was Are never you, an employee of google but, but you but sold the company to that's them, right right that's right do you get a sense that, i mean i know you know a lot of people in the valley and whatnot that there is a genuine because you kind of read about it but it's a lot of it is theoretical this idea that like employees now are just like what have we done or is it still just kind of, are they in the seven stages of denial or whatever it is? I'm not aware of any internal polling at, at Google or Facebook about this, so I can only speak anecdotally. But it feels to me like it's maybe half and half now, including at the very Isn't highest levels. Isn't that pretty massive, though? Yeah, I would say so. It's not as though at Facebook people are that free with their opinions, but privately, Facebook people have been very unhappy with what's been going on and very open to major changes. This sort of incrementalism uh, where the basic business structure and the basic incentive structure and the, the basic game remain unchanged, but they tweak things like try to forbid this and that and, capture, and, and catch this or that. Yeah, it all feels like w window dressing. I don't think it's useless. I, I don't want to criticize it because I think any little bit helps. And the last thing I want to do is say, don't try to make improvements uh, because the improvements might might help. Incrementalism can be helpful, but it just seems to me that it creates a cat and mouse game with, with bad actors that just generates more and more of a sophisticated cyber mafia that's trying to abuse your system. 
What's already happened is that as companies like Google and Facebook have tried to enforce policies that make people just kind of nicer and less abusive and less manipulative, the bad actors have gotten more and more sophisticated and more organized in response. There's another side of that that bugs me, which is we've gotten to the point where we're demanding that companies like Facebook and Google police speech. That's not a good place for us to be in if we believe in the free exchange of ideas and democracy. It might be the best we can get as long as we believe in the bummer machine as the basis of everything. But it still is ridiculous. And surely we can find a society that makes more sense than that. One of the other things I thought was really interesting in the book is this idea of the death of empathy, the death of context. Mm -hmm. What is that dynamic, if you could explain that and why that is a really bad thing? Communication between people is a more subtle and less understood phenomenon than is generally recognized. What you say doesn't have an absolute meaning. It only has a meaning in context. So if you say, run, fire, and there's actually a fire, that's very different than if you say, run, fire, and there's no fire, and it's a crowded theater, and people are killed in a, in a stampede, right? Knowing the context in which you'll be heard is essential if you're to speak at all. It does. You can never know it perfectly, by the way. There's always a degree of unpredictability, but you have to at least have a sense of it in order to speak at all. Any speech between one person and another can only be mediated by a third person who's paying to manipulate them. In that regime, it's that third person who sets the context, or rather the system that's encouraging that third person to spend more and more money. You might say, I want to talk about the Arab Spring, or I want to talk about Black Lives Matter, or whatever it is. But in the context, it might be turned into incitement for the countergroup. You don't have control of your own context. You don't have control of what is seen around or before and after what you say. And so... Um, so what you, you say something, context comes is imposed The after. context is imposed. And so then that forces people into the style of rhetoric. You're always going back to square zero because you don't really know what the context will be. So it forces people into kind of blunt rhetoric that you see on Twitter that can sometimes be effective and entertaining, but it's very hard for it to be thorough or subtle or or nuanced, because nuance can definitely only communicate with some sense of context around it. This loss of context is really the loss of communication. So I find it terribly annoying when Facebook will say, oh, we're bringing you together with your friends, when actually what they're doing is they're saying, we will impose a context that you can't foresee between you and your friends. I don't even know if that is properly connection, because it at any given time, it might be just the opposite. It might it might turn into something that can be quite nefarious. This goes by different terms. It seems like the most common phrase these days is context collapse. Mm. But uh, it's absolutely essential to understand it because this notion that you're getting yourself out there on social media and that whatever other problems there might be, that social media is uh, allowing you to do this or that is generally an illusion you're turning into fuel for a machine that's mashed you up and turned you into something very different. Like cars don't enable dinosaurs. Cars use the oil left over from dinosaurs to do something entirely different, unrelated to dinosaurs. And that's essentially what's happening to you on social media. I have to say, when I state a criticism of that kind... It's always important to remember that intrinsically, all of these things are statistical, not absolute. It's not that all context is gone totally instantly always. Rather, 
a certain amount of context is gone to different degrees at different times unpredictably, and it's a statistical effect. Criticizing the bummer machine is a little bit like um, talking about global climate change in that you can't really tie any specific storm or flood or whatever it might be to climate change. It's just that statistically it changes the odds and it creates trends. And in the same way, it's impossible to say that any particular asshole was created by or amplified by by social media or wouldn't have been there otherwise. It's more a trend. It's a trend that... Uh, There's more assholes or more well, visible assholes, more instance, empowered assholes. We saw democracy spreading and then whenever Facebook arrives, we see it receding all around the world, whether it's a rich country or a poor country. That's a trend. So the arc of history has uh, reversed with the arrival of bummer machines. So that's a trend. To say that any particular one, to say that any particular country that Hungary or Turkey or the US Man, or whatever or... would be different than they are is impossible to say. Um, although, well, it's almost possible to say, let's say. <laughs> right. Because um, so, in the yeah. book you said, I think Facebook basically needs to change its model for, quote unquote, the long-term survival of our species. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely stand by that. If the species dies and some future species of intelligent um, flying octopus inherits the earth and they go back over us, they'll probably blame Facebook for our demise. No, well, not Facebook specifically, but the bummer machine, because the critical thing is that as we gain technological power, so we have more and more latitude to do things, we remove ourselves from the daily pressure to survive. So if a uh, hunter-gatherer fails to catch food for enough days, that, that, that person will starve, right? But once we have a system of comforts, where we can always go to the store and this and that, it's possible to lose track of what we need to do to survive. We're steps removed from the decisions that are uh, existential for us. We, we, so comfort can be the bearer of illusions, right? So we can suddenly think, well, maybe we don't need vaccines. Maybe we don't need education. And there's all these and, Facebook groups that are like anti-vaxxers and yeah. they all agree and they have all this really interesting quote-unquote research that shows that... So the thing is, as our technology improves, that we have greater comfort and we're more and more removed from the immediate feedback that leads to our survival or failure to survive, as that happens, we need to have forms of media that help us be sane so that we don't become crazy from the lack of immediate feedback. The bummer machine, Facebook and YouTube and so forth and Twitter, these things are making us crazy just at the moment when we're becoming so comfortable that that craziness can be a threat to our existence. If you talk about the, the direction of travel and you talk about what is happening now with all of this, these empires, these behavior modification empires collecting data on everything we do and say and how we act, etc. Mm -hmm. And all of this is feeding toward this quote-unquote artificial intelligence. And that the basic kind of talking point is don't worry, you, maybe your jobs are going to be eliminated but we'll have universal basic income, et cetera. Is that inevitable, that kind of path toward this all-knowing, all-seeing, all-everything AI? And are we just pawns in that? The, yeah, I want to make two observations about this, uh, sort of a small one and a big one. The small one is that 
One of the popular responses in the technical community now is that in the future, uh, human roles will be those things that are kind of very, very human, like loving nurses. There's this notion of an economy. That one always comes up. Yeah. But at the same time, I have never seen anybody in the industry that talks about how AI is going to take over, promote um, expanded social safety nets or expanded spending for health care or saying, well, you know, you should raise my taxes to pay for more nurses. That will never happen. So especially in the U.S., we're, we're forcing nurses into and teachers and other caring professions into uh, destitution in the service of centralizing wealth around tech companies. So I just have to call absolute bullshit on this whole idea because we don't have the courage to live by it. It's just a point of rhetoric. There's not a, Nobody raises even a little finger to pursue this as a goal. So that's that's the small point. The bigger point is that and I'm sorry to use the word bullshit, but it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I've never. I, I can't remember the last time I read a book with uh, the word asshole in it so many times. It's it quite funny, actually. Yeah, you know, it's um, sh- the wonderful uh, writer and psychologist Sherry Turkle read the book, and she said, uh, "If I can paraphrase, you could ask her if you want." She said, "This is fantastic. It's amazing, but there's just too much tush in it." <laughs> And for, for that, I blame my wife, who's present, who likes butt jokes. So I, I completely uh, deny responsibility for this emphasis. Anyway, on AI. So there's some ideas that you can demonstrate are true or likely to be true. And some you can demonstrate are false. Some you can demonstrate are undecidable. Uh, some you can say maybe we'll know some someday, but we don't know yet. But there are other ideas that aren't even well-formed. So it doesn't even make sense to ask if they're true or false or if they have some other status because they don't make sense. And to me, AI is is in that category. And, And what I mean by that is with AI, you replace engineering criteria such as does this engine run too hot? Let us put a thermometer on it and measure if it's too hot. That's an engineering criteria. And then you can say, is it running within specification or not? And you can innovate to get it to if it isn't. But with AI, there's this vague fantasy. Is it becoming intelligent? And even Turing pointed out that the only way to talk about that is through human subjective judgment of comparing what a machine does to what a person does. But who's to say what that judgment is? That's just this, it's just a fashion. It's just like liking music or not. Oh, it feels intelligent to me. And indeed, some of what I've done, including the content of that company that my friends and I sold to Google, these days would be called AI because AI is like this imperialistic term that just takes on anything that helps it sell itself. It doesn't have any boundary. It doesn't mean anything. And so it makes engineering crappy because it replaces firm criteria with subjective science fiction criteria of how things feel to engineers. Oh, this feels like we've made something that's intelligent. Now, I know I'll get a lot of pushback for that. What about when they can learn to play the game of Go? or something like that. But in every individual case, when you look at such things, the setup is designed for the fantasy, not for anything measurable. The setup might include inputting a lot of games from human users that are integrated into the strategy, or it might mean limiting the the scope of the game to be something that's more purely algorithmic than the human version, as happened with poker. Because, I mean, the thing about games like Go is that they're not purely logical puzzles. They're also, they're also an exercise in concentration and meditation. There's, there's a complexity to it. And I don't think anyone, well, there's some people who claim that no algorithm could ever 
do these puzzles. I was never one of those people. I think the more sophisticated argument is that even as we redefine what we think a computer can do, because we have a fantasy about it, we're also defining downward our expectations of what a person is. We're saying that the Go player is nothing but a problem solver, no longer a meditator for instance, are that the poker player is only an algorithm runner and not somebody who's learning to read other people and trying to bluff them. We're redefining where the game is to whatever it is the latest algorithm does. And that inevitably turns people from an open-ended mystery into into a prematurely closed story. And the bummer machine, like all our participation in it, is all kind of... But feeding into that, those smarter and smaller algorithms. Yeah, the story within the tech companies that is most common these days is that that we're building this AI and we're engaged in this AI race. And because I believe that there isn't a solid logical foundation to describe what AI is, and that it's just a science, it's just a fantasy. It's a kind of role playing for engineers, because that's how I take it. I just view this as madness in which all the companies are spending a certain tax to support a silly fantasy rather than actually serve the users. And I stand by that. I think that that's accurate. And I I count my own lab as one of the ones committing that mistake. Well, look, you've been very generous with your time. I appreciate it. From all of this, obviously, these things are bad, but you're an optimist. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, the critic is the true optimist because the critic is the person who believes that things can get better and it's worth them being better. The pessimist is complacent. The Panglossian is the, the pessimist. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Jaron as well as his wife, Lena, for letting us invade their home. Um, they're very generous with their time and also thanks uh, to Jaron for also sitting to take pictures, which wasn't necessarily his bag, but he did it anyway. It's very kind. Um, if you want to read more about the book, uh, the more of the interview, this weekend in the Sunday Times Magazine, I've written a piece uh, based on this interview, uh, as well as there's also an excerpt from his book in the magazine, so do check that out. And I will be back next week with another edition so in the meantime as always find me on twitter at danny fortson in the newspaper in the sunday times at thetimes.co.uk in the magazine this weekend um, with the jaron linear interview um i can't think of anything else ah of course rating and reviewing please do it stop an apple podcast take a second give us five stars or four if you're not feeling so generous Anyhow, that is all we all the time we have for this week. Thank you again for tuning in. We will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.